Welcome to an exceptional edition of Rebellion's Educational Series. I have Lieutenant George Hodgen, Navy SEAL, on to talk about life as a SEAL and PTSD and marijuana. Lieutenant, thank you so much for coming on today. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So first, I, I read you were in combat for nearly seven years. Is that correct? So I served as a SEAL for about seven years. Of that seven years, uh, I had two extended deployments, one for about nine months, the other for seven months. Those were both in combat zones. So it wasn't like 24-7 for seven years in combat, but I was de deployed to combat uh, for, I guess, in total, probably two of those seven years. Wow. And so how often were you actually engaged in firefights or were you ever engaged in a firefight? Uh, yes, engaged in firefights. Um, my deployment to Afghanistan, there's sort of, it's just perennially the combat zone when you're outside of the, outside of the wire. So I would say in Afghanistan, it was always considered sort of a, a non-permissive or dangerous environment. There were always IEDs and grenades and the threat of attack. Um, so of that deployment to Afghanistan, you sort of feel like you're in a firefight quite often, but like really engaged heavy kinetic operations in Afghanistan, um, several handfuls, like, you know, less than 50, more than 15 kind of thing. What did that do to your psyche then? How waking up every morning, knowing there was a potential that you could die that day, you'd be, you have a limb severed that day, life, you know, how, how did you deal? Um, it's, I don't know necessarily like from a medical or academic perspective, what it does to someone. What I do know just on the individual level uh, is that um, I think it forces you very quickly to uh, realize why you're there, realize why you're fighting, knowing that you're going into danger every day. Like in, in some of the outcomes you mentioned, if it's losing a limb or friend or eyesight or death, um, really forces someone to hone in on what their priorities in life are. Think about your family a lot. Think about your friends. If you're a person of faith, uh, then that becomes particularly important. Um, but I think over time, it starts to, to sort of wear people down. They say that most historically deployments are not supposed to last longer than six months. After six months, there starts to become long-term health implications or psyche implications. Um, but given just the nature of the world right now, most special operations folks are, are deploying for far longer than six months, which certainly makes people very, very on edge when they come home. I can imagine people being extremely on edge. You go from a life worrying about losing your, you know, safety, just absolutely being in question at all times. Uh, I, I can't imagine. Was there mental training too when you became a SEAL or was it just physical training? Uh, lots of mental training, actually. So the, the training itself, they say, is about 90% mental, 10% physical. So you have to be able to perform at a pretty exceptionally high level of physical fitness but the training itself really focuses on uh, developing and practicing resilience, stoicism, the ability to, to complete tasks or stay focused under extreme duress, which I would say is all very mental. Um, and then once you get to your actual deploying SEAL team, like past training, there is a focus on-, uh, on Lieutenant, on, like, may I interrupt you? Back in, in training, what was the hardest part of training where your kind of mental self came the closest to not wanting to participate any longer? Yeah, so it, 
different for every every guy. For me, there's one training, one uh, part of the training that's called pool comp, pool competency, where effectively the instructors take you down underwater for about 20 minutes and just beat the hell out of you. Um, and you feel like you're drowning for the entire 20 minutes and you're meant to go through like a really complex series of problems around scuba diving. The goal is to make sure that you can behave and perform a task under a lot of stress. And if you take someone underwater and hold them there, um, that tends to induce a stress response. So for me, that was the most challenging uh, part of training. I did fine with the no sleep in the cold. Some guys are absolute fish and they, they just crush being underwater and the cold gets them. For me, it was the, the, that underwater training event. How cold is cold? Um, I'd say you're just always bone cold. So most of the training takes, takes place off the coast of San Diego, California. Um, and despite being sort of a sunny place, you're in the Pacific Ocean all the time. There's like over a year, year and a half training period. There's very, very few times when you're actually dry. So you're pretty much wet. Uh, in the Pacific Ocean for like a year, year and a half straight. The water there can be anywhere from like 53 to 65 degrees, just depending on the time of year. And so it's, it's cold water. Yeah. And so your ability for performing tasks obviously include uh, you know, weaponry. Did you get better with guns under stress throughout the year and a half, or did you kind of, you know, start equipped? Um, I did not start equipped. Uh, so you absolutely are trained in terms of how to be a professional combat arm. So how to shoot, move, communicate under fire, under stressful situations, how to operate your machinery, your, your weapon systems, take care of them. The training is very, very rigorous. Uh, and they assume that you know nothing when it comes to weaponry. So it's a really, it's a crawl, walk, run approach. Um, you know, you start like, you start with pistols and then you graduate to do it to, having clearing a room with machine guns without speaking in the dead of night, kind of with your teammates. So you go from zero to 60 quickly. Is there a Navy preferred gun or machine gun? Is uh, Navy I SEAL preferred? To... Yeah, I mean, most most SEALs use a six hour, nine millimeter pistol. Uh, it depends on the operator in some instances, but most folks use the six hour, nine millimeter. There's like a maritime edition, which is better for rust and being around water. Um, naturally. And then uh, most guys use for their rifle will use like an M4. They're switching over to the SCAR, the FN, the Brief National SCAR weapon uh, nowadays, but sometimes it's up to the individual or what his, his job is in the SEAL platoon. Oh, and uh, parachuting, was that a major component or not really? Yeah, major component. Um, so there's two types of parachuting that SEALs do. One is called static line parachuting, um, which would be sort of analogous to like what the 82nd Airborne in the Army does, um, where you jump out of a plane at low altitude and the way your parachute is configured, it effectively pulls itself. So you just jump and fall kind of. The, what I would say is sort of more advanced and certainly fun uh, and tactically useful is free fall where you jump out of like skydiving, you jump out of an airplane um, really high up and then kind of cruise to your, to your target. And that's a big, that's, Every SEAL has to be free fall qualified, and it's, uh, it's a blast. I think it's kind of fun. So you absolutely enjoy it? Yes. Uh, I like, I did professionally. I have two young kids now, and now that I'm no longer in the Navy, that that hobby has died uh, yeah. with my old now, career. Children come first. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's funny. We had uh, NASA astronaut J.D. Weatherby on 
last week who has commanded the most uh, U.S. shuttle missions or any space missions of any astronaut. And he actually has a terrible fear of heights. And so he can't even look down when he was in the shuttle. He could, if he looked down, he'd start feeling sick. So he just, you know, he didn't mind, you know, and, and he flew a Corsair and he got catapulted off carriers and he didn't mind the G hits, but he couldn't look down on the top of the shuttle. And actually speaking of, you know, height issues, astronaut Nicole Stott, who spent like, I think a hundred days in space, she has trouble looking down when she goes skiing from the chairlift. So it's amazing how height can affect some people. And, you know, you just have an absolute blast skydiving. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear about their fear of heights because it makes all of us, it makes them seem human when otherwise they're literally out of this world late. So, uh, yes, I, I, I revere astronauts. Like absolutely. I love space. It's my obsession. Yeah. Yeah. Rebellion's actually developing uh, deep learning for uh, you know, space uh, navigation. And so the idea being that we can take millions of uh, constellation images and start creating uh, a bit of a map uh, for the U.S. Space Force. And so uh, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, something that we do uh, on an academic basis. So speaking of academic basis, how much government funding is for marijuana for veterans? I, you know, let's jump right. I, I hate to go from training to, to veterans, but I want to know, are they being taken care of? Are we testing it right now? Because I know cannabis has tremendous effects for people with stress, anxiety, and so it should be a you know, lends itself naturally to veterans. That's exactly right. So uh, the short answer is no. The federal government is not by any means uh, taking care of veterans when it comes to cannabis, nor are they investing in research. Uh, historically, government funding for cannabis has come from the National Institute of Health. Um, I think over the past five years, they've invested around four hundred million dollars in the cannabis research the overwhelming majority of which has looked at the negative or adverse effects of cannabis like any other drug, but they have not invested in the therapeutic or the beneficial uh, outcomes related to veterans. I was speaking with a friend of mine who's a psychologist about the show, and he said, Alex, you know, ask the SEAL if there's extra, you know, attention for those in the military that have taken someone out in combat. And so if you've you know, uh, you know, killed someone in combat, the idea is that there is added extra stress on you. And that's something that, the, for instance, the show The Sopranos makes a, a big deal out of the extra stress out of killing someone and how it lingers with you and, and whatnot. And so can, can you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think no doubt that uh, most special operations or a, a, a large majority of special operations folks are certainly post 9-11 uh, military veterans have experienced combat or close killing in combat, either a friend dying or taking someone else's life. Um, and that is no doubt a stressor. Uh, in my opinion, that if the country is going to send someone overseas and either ask them to kill or be killed, the country should be doing everything in its power to explore alternative healthcare treatments for those people. And right now we're not doing that. I'll give you an example. So, uh, Post 9-11 veterans, meaning folks that served in Iraq or Afghanistan after September 11th, one third of them uh, report to using cannabis or marijuana to treat their chronic pain uh, or PTSD. However, the VA and the federal government does not acknowledge the existence of marijuana as a medicine. I'm not saying that it's a panacea or that it, that it is in fact a rigorously developed medicine. Uh, but what I am saying is that 
if a third of our veterans say it helps them, why would the government not be researching? It's, it's really amazing. Marijuana clearly impairs you. And with that impairment comes, you know, obviously joy, you know, lack of ability to drive and operate heavy machinery. But for those veterans that are dealing with constant pain, a necessary escape from a really unpleasant environment. That's exactly right. Yeah, the, you know, what's another interesting stat to me is the American Legion, which represents millions of veterans around the country, uh, ran a survey of its members and found that 92%, 92% of veterans want the federal government to explore marijuana as a potential medicine. They're not saying that it is a medicine, but they're saying, look, if this can treat our chronic pain, you know, a messed up knee or back, where we otherwise would be using opioids or benzos, why would we not be looking at that? If this is something that could help our PTSD, why wouldn't the government be exploring a way to take care of that? And I'll sort of say the inverse as well. And that is that uh, without rigorous research into marijuana and its effects, a large majority of the country could be uh, potentially doing damage to themselves that they don't fully understand. And here's what I mean. 200 million Americans live in a state where they can access marijuana legally unless they're a doctor or a hospital or a biotech company or a pharmacist. In other words, that latter category, doctors and researchers are regulated by the feds, which doesn't allow marijuana to be researched at all. Consumers though, if you live in Florida, California, places like that that have legalized marijuana, you can go out and use it. But the doctors have no idea what the long-term health effects are. Nobody is studying what marijuana does in people, despite the increasing prevalence of its use throughout our society. I think that's a massive missed opportunity on behalf of the federal government. Lieutenant, you told me 22 veterans are taking their lives a day. That is a, a real chilling fact that's happening right now that we need to do something about. And so the research needs to commence. I, I absolutely agree with you. This is this to me is playing as a, a site. I, I'm a very pro-universal uh, pre-kindergarten person. Um, it, it's... You know, I'm generally you know, quite a libertarian, but when it comes to uh, education, I you know, absolutely love education. I know how important it is for it. But for me, this is a very simple issue. And, and giving people a mental need, you know, something to soothe them, I just, I feel like the government is really absolutely dropping the, the ball. And I feel like they have a, you know, an obligation to our veterans to take uh, better care of them. So, um, you know, uh, Lieutenant, this was a, Fantastic episode. Uh, let's talk about your company now. It's a fantastic venture-backed uh, firm. Uh, you know, please tell our, our viewers about it. Yes, our, our company name is BRC, which stands for Biopharmaceutical Research Company. We are going through the federal process, meaning the FDA and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to gain uh, approval to legally produce, federally legally produce marijuana for research, cannabis for research, uh, for veterans and things like chronic pain and PTSD. So as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, research into cannabis's benefits is not happening in our country. The reason is that there is uh, not an adequate source, meaning not a good source of legal marijuana to give to universities and pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. Our company is going through that process to be licensed by the federal government to produce cannabis-based cannabis -based medicine. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to get the supply you need. 
before we conclude this absolutely awesome uh, episode, I guess my concluding question would be, what inspired you to be a Navy SEAL? Uh, I remember exactly like a lot of Americans, exactly where I was on September the 11th. I watched the towers come down uh, and I knew instantly that the century uh, that was gonna follow 9-11 and our lives were gonna change forever. Uh, I wanted to serve and I wanted to, to give back to the country that had given so much to me. And so uh, for me, if I wanted to serve after September 11th, I wanted to do it in the most impactful way on the front lines of the war on terror. And so that meant becoming a Navy SEAL. And I, I lost a good friend. I, and uh, I went to two funerals one Saturday, uh, a few weeks after. It was really just a terrible time. And very, same time, inspirational for so many and fantastic to hear. And thank you for your service to this country, uh, Lieutenant. I really appreciate you uh, donating your time to this uh, educational conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Stay safe. Thank you.